section thirty six of From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Bodorf. From the Tower Window of My Bookhouse. Edited by Olive Beaupre Miller. Joan of Arc. The year, 1412, there was born in the village of Doremy in France a little peasant girl called Joan of Arc. Her parents were honest laboring folk, and they lived in a cottage that bordered directly on the churchyard. In the cool and peaceful shadow of the church, with all its holy associations, Joan spent, with her brothers and sisters, a very happy childhood. She shared with unbounded energy all their joyous activity and sports, yet who so ready as she to perform her share of the household tasks, or respond to any command of her parents with simple loving obedience? Beneath the stately trees of the splendid old forest of Doremy, she tended her father's sheep, and she aided him too in many a rough man's task. Yet in heart and soul she was every whit a woman thoroughly skilled in fine needlework and all womanly household arts. Everyone in the village loved Joan for the charm of her sweet simplicity and her wholly unselfish kindness. Deep in the heart of the girl was implanted an earnest love of God as well as a love of her fellow men, and as she grew somewhat older she often went apart from the boisterous play of the other children to pass many hours in quiet meditation and prayer her thoughts sweeping out far beyond the little circle of daily concerns that occupied her playmates. Now the affairs of France were at this time in a most unhappy state, for the English, in league with the Burgundians, had conquered almost the whole of France, and the Dauphin, Charles the Seventh, having never the courage to get himself crowned, was looking on in lazy indolence without a thought of resistance even meditating flight and the total abandonment of his kingdom. A sorry king with no money, no army, and worst of all, no spirit and no purpose. Over all these things Joan pondered with the most serious concern, and her deep-rooted conviction of the goodness and power of God, her live consciousness of God as a very real presence, filled her with the most certain assurance that not so unjust as the forceful conquest of France by alien invaders could ever be accomplished. All the power and strength and might of God were against such injustice. In her heart and soul strange stirrings and longings awoke till at length all her waking hours were spent in almost continuous prayer for her country's deliverance. One summer's day, when Joan was thirteen years old, she was wandering alone in her father's garden at midday, her spirit more than ever astir within her, when she suddenly heard a voice call her. Instantly a great light shone upon her, and she saw the archangel Michael before her. He bid her continue to be a good girl, and made the solemn announcement that it was she, and none other, who should save the kingdom of France, who should go to the help of the Dauphin and bring him to Reims to be crowned. The child, so young and weak before such a mighty task, fell on her knees overcome. I am but a poor girl, she said. God will help thee, answered the angel. 
From this day Joan's life became even more pure and sweet than before. She loved to go apart from her playmates and meditate, and now heavenly voices often spoke to her telling her of her mission. These, she said, were the voices of her saints. Sometimes the voices were accompanied by visions. St. Catherine and St. Margaret appeared to her. Thus the child grew to young maidenhood, her mind elevated by her visions. At the beginning of the year, 1428, when Joan was sixteen, the voices told her that the time was now come when she could no longer delay. She must go at once to the Dauphin to save the kingdom. They commanded her first to seek out the sire de Boudricourt and ask of him an escort to conduct her to the Dauphin. Conscious that her parents, bound by their fearful human love for her, would never aid her in such an undertaking, Joan went to an uncle and begged him to accompany her to the sire at Vaucouleur. Her ardent sincerity overcame the objections of the peasant, and he went with her. Boudricourt's reception of Joan was brutal. When the girl told him that she was destined of God to lead the Dauphin to his coronation, and begged him to send her to Charles, he cried, This girl is crazy. Box her ears and take her back to her father. Thus Joan was returned with scorn to Doremi. Another less earnest and consecrated might have been shamed by such a reception into yielding up her purpose. But urged by her voices, Joan persisted, and went once more to Boudricourt. He received her with the same mocking disbelief as before. Soon nothing was talked of at Vaucouleurs but the young girl who went about openly saying that God destined her to save the kingdom, and someone must take her to Charles the Dauphin. At length, while the sire and his noble friends utterly scoffed at the idea that God should give a poor peasant girl power to save a kingdom where the most experienced generals had failed, the simple-hearted people, moved by her faith, began to believe in her mission. A certain young squire offered to take her to Chinon, where Charles was then staying. The poor folk, heaping all their little savings together, raised money enough to clothe and arm her and buy her a horse. Thus with a small escort she set out for Chinon. Boudricourt still flung his jibes after her, but the multitude, many among them weeping to see the young thing go so bravely forth to face such fearful odds, cried from the very depths of their hearts, God keep you. English and Burgundians held all the country over which the little party must pass, and every bridge was occupied by the enemy. Thus Joan had to travel by night and hide by day. Her companions soon began to lose heart in the face of such dangers, and urged a return to Vaucouleurs. But Joan's answer was resolute. Fear nothing, for God is leading me. On the twelfth day after starting, the party arrived at Chinon. Now the courtiers of Charles the Seventh were by no means agreed as to how this maiden, who made such remarkable claims, should be received. Some, jealous of their power over the mind of the Dauphin, urged him not to receive her at all. But just at that moment came news from Orleans, almost the last great French stronghold to hold out against the English, that it was like to fall, and those courtiers who favored Joan carried their point that the last chance of saving Orleans should not be neglected. By the flaring light of torches, Joan was led one evening to the castle. She had never seen the king, and the great hall was crowded with nobles. In order to test the truth of the girl's claim that she was inspired of God, the Dauphin had attired himself in a plain costume, 
and stood in the midst of a throng of his nobles, while one of his courtiers in the royal robes sat upon the throne. Joan, however, did not hesitate. She singled Charles out at a glance, came at once and knelt before him. "'I am not the king,' he asserted. "'Yonder is the king.' "'You are he, gentle prince, and no other,' the girl insisted. And then she proceeded to tell the Dauphin of her mission, assuring him, with all the fire of her high and noble purpose burning in her eyes, that God had sent her to have him crowned and save the kingdom of France. Still the young coward hesitated. He was afraid that the girl might be a sorceress, so he sent her off to be examined by a body of learned men and ecclesiastics. For three weeks these men tormented her with questions, but she answered them, always straight to the point, and in the face of all their suspicions and efforts to entrap her, her inspiration and self-command never once flagged or failed. If it be God's intent to save France, he hath no need of men-at-arms to accomplish his purpose, objected the tribunal. The soldiers must do the fighting, but God will give the victory, Joan quietly made answer. At length the common people once again declared in favor of the girl, and the learned and powerful were forced to yield to the simple faith of the multitude. The troops gathered at Blois, and Joan arrived, followed by the greatest nobles of France. She rode in armor and on horseback, an appealing girlish figure of a natural grace and dignity that softened and subdued even the rudest of the soldiers. She bore a white banner of her own design, which was intended to remind the army continually of the purity of their cause and the God who was their strength. Dunois, who was in command at Orleans, came to meet Joan. She said to him simply, I bring you the best of help, that of the King of Heaven. It does not come from me, but from God himself. At eight in the evening Joan entered Orleans. The people crowded to meet her. In the midst of a throng so dense that she could scarcely make her way, she passed by torchlight through the city. Men, women, and children wished to get near her and even to touch her horse. Joan spoke to them with compassion and promised to deliver them. First of all she asked to be led to a church to offer thanks to God. As she passed along the way, an old man cried out to her, My daughter, the English are strong and well entrenched. It will be difficult to get rid of them. She answered confidently, Nothing is impossible to God. Her confidence infected everyone around her. The people of Orleans, so lately timid and discouraged, wished now to throw themselves at once upon the enemy, but Dunois, fearful of defeat, decided to await reinforcements which Charles had promised to send to Joan from Blois. In the meantime, from the walls of Orleans, Joan summoned the English to depart and return to their own country, but they answered her with insults. The reinforcements from Blois were so long in appearing that Dunois, at length, went himself to see what had become of them. He arrived just in time to discover that the weak and changeable Dauphin had been influenced by jealous courtiers to desert Joan and send the troops not to her but back to their quarters. With difficulty Dunois prevailed on Charles to send the men to Orleans. On the 4th of May the battle began. Everywhere Joan was in the thick of the fight urging on her men without a thought of herself, but never did she use her sword. Her standard was her sole weapon. Once while she was taking a little rest, 
the commander, without her knowledge, ordered an attack on a certain bastion held by the English. Always the commanders were jealously attempting to gain the victory without Joan in order to take to themselves the credit. But their attack failed, and the French were retreating in great disorder when Joan awakened suddenly from her sleep and rushed to their assistance. She rallied them and led them once more against the foe. This time the English strove in vain to maintain their position. They were forced to surrender the bastion. Thus Joan was led in great glory back to Orleans. But as she crossed the battlefield, where in the heat of contest her determined spirit had upheld them all, she gave way and wept like any woman for compassion of the wounds and suffering that had been caused by the battle. It was now a question how to follow up against the English this attack so happily begun. The leaders, far from pleased to be led by a peasant girl and to share with her the victory, met in secret to discuss the plans to be adopted. Joan presented herself indignantly at the council, and as the Chancellor of the Duke of Orleans tried to conceal the decisions that had been made, she cried, "'Tell me what you have concluded. You have been at your council and I at mine.' She meant that she had been earnestly at prayer. "'And believe me, the counsels of God shall be accomplished and stand while yours shall perish.' Thereafter she did indeed lead the French to most brilliant victory. Often she angered the generals by not taking their advice and pursuing the most approved military tactics. But she lent to the men a spirited resolution and inspired them with boundless faith. Moreover, she herself was so persuaded that victory was inevitable if she persevered unflinchingly in her efforts to obtain it, that nothing could stand before her. So in four days the English, who had been for eight months before Orleans, were forced to give up the siege. News of the victory spread far and wide, and attested in the sight of all the truth of Joan's assertion that she was led of God. The Holy Maid did not linger to be praised and thanked by the people of Orleans, but returned hastily to Chinon, desiring to take Charles at once to Reims to be crowned. But the Dauphin, though he received her with great honors, refused to follow her to Reims, not intending that she should disturb the base indolence of his royal existence. Accordingly, Joan proceeded against the English again, and won three more great battles, driving the foe beyond the Loire. Then at last, still reluctantly, Charles was induced to surrender his ease long enough to go to Reims. On the 16th of July, he entered the city at the head of his troops, and the next day the ceremony of coronation took place in the cathedral before a great concourse of people. When Charles had been crowned, Joan flung herself at his feet, weeping hot tears. O oh, sire, she cried, now is accomplished the will of God. All who saw her at that moment, says the old chronicle, believed more than ever that it was a thing come from God and the attachment of the common people to her was a touching sight. They contested among themselves to kiss her hands or her clothes or only to touch her. It was the moment of her supremest triumph. And now that Joan had fulfilled all her mission, obeyed all the commands that God had given her, she earnestly besought Charles to let her return to her home, to the sweet simplicity of her early life. For in all she had done she had no smallest thought of reward or self-glorification, but only of simple devotion to God and to France. The Dauphin, however, would not let her go. 
he commanded her to remain at the head of his army. At this a great indecision came upon Joan. Against her judgment she obeyed him, and from the moment of her yielding to his will, instead of to her own inner counsellors, her voices deserted her, her inspiration fled. Her path from now on was the sad downward path of defeat. Joan wished to proceed at once against Paris, but the king hesitated and so gave the English time to prepare their defense. When the assault at last was made it was repulsed, and Joan was severely wounded, yet they had to drag her away from the foot of the ramparts to make her abandon the conflict. The next day the king utterly refused to renew the attack, though Joan answered for its success. He was not willing to exert himself any further. He must resume his indolent ease. Therefore he stubbornly insisted on a retreat. With a heart full of grief, Joan followed the king. It was her first defeat, and it instantly dispelled the implicit faith of the people in her. One cent of God, they argued, could never be defeated. Little they knew that since the coronation at Reims, it had been the king's will and not the inspiration of God to which Joan had been obedient. Thinking there had been enough of fighting, and wishing to put a stop to Joan's successes, the courtiers induced Charles to disband his army and give up all further activity against the invaders. A sad situation for Joan. Taking unceremonious leave of the king, she went to help the French wherever they were still fighting. At length, after many adventures, Joan came to Compiègne to lead the garrison out against the Burgundians, who pressed them hard, but the English came to the aid of the Burgundians, and the French gave back, carrying Joan unwillingly with them in the midst of their retreat. When she and her party came under the walls of Compiègne, they found the gates closed. The commander of the city, whom Joan had come to succor, had deliberately shut her out from the shelter of its walls. With her back against the bank of the moat, Joan still defended herself till a whole troop rushed upon her. Nor did she ever surrender, but was dragged by her flowing garments from her horse and taken prisoner. From the walls of the city the governor saw her taken, but raised not a finger to save her. So Joan fell into the hands of her bitter enemies who hated her for her successes against them and after a few months the Burgundians sold her to the English. All this time Charles, whom she had made King of France, never offered to ransom her, nor from now on through her time of trial, showed the slightest interest in her. Shut up in the dungeon in the castle of Rouen, she was guarded day and night by soldiers, whose brutality and insult she was forced to endure. But now to her joy her voices came back to console and support her. Once more she had the unspeakable comfort of knowing that God was with her. At length she was given over to the Inquisition for trial. To the insidious questions of her judges the unhappy maid had nothing to oppose but the uprightness and simplicity of her heart. Take good heed what you do, she said, for truly I am sent by God, and you put yourselves in great peril. She was nevertheless condemned as a heretic and sorceress and ordered to be burnt at the stake in the market-place of Rouen. On the 30th of May, 1431, she was led to the place of execution. At the foot of the pile she asked for a cross, and she died with the name of Jesus on her lips, her eyes bright 
as with triumph and her whole face transfigured with the consolation of hearkening to her voices. All were weeping, even the executioners and judges, and a great fear came upon all. End of section 36 Joan of Arc